This program contains mature subject matter. Including maladjusted youth, masochistic hillbillies, and the excitement of the price is right. It may be deemed inappropriate for our younger viewers. Viewer discretion advised. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. <laughs> I'll give you a choice. I can put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. You maniacs! What is a man? When we are successful, we're worthy. We had a real chance with this. I think when you've interviewed as much as you've been and quoted as much as you've been, it's perhaps a little unfair to bring back past quotes, particularly from that period. But I was Are we ever gonna get to the present? I was staggered when I when I read a quote from a Rolling Stones interview that you gave at the time saying, I believe very strongly in fascism. We need a dictatorial right wing tyranny. What was that about? Um, I think that was probably uh, a bit coke driven. (laughs) It was also part of I was I had I fell into the trap of this the black magic uh, capitalism and um, the whole idea of the uh, just the Crowleyism of uh, you know the times. It was a significant part of that middle point of the seventies, and uh, I really got completely disoriented by all that. It was an awful, dreadful period for me. I mean, the only escape for me in the end was just to just to get up and clean clean myself out, you know, and just just finish my association with cocaine, which had become such a problem that I just I couldn't function on in any other way from day to day. I couldn't, I wasn't eating. I couldn't eat anything. My, I mean, if you've seen photographs of me in that period, I mean, I weighed I don't know 90, 95 pounds or something. It was just dreadful. I'm absolutely amazed that I actually survived that period. You, you did come through it, obviously, and you you continued to produce groundbreaking you know, we're only, music through the we're 70s. We're only in the late 70s. And I think, <laughs> no, we're getting I think we've got to stop in a minute. <laughs> we're getting there. But it, it's commonly accepted that you, you lost your artistic thread in the 80s, and I've seen you describe yeah. it as your Phil Collins period. What happened there? Poor old Phil. Uh, <laughs> I tell you, that's the trouble when you become a symbol for something. And Phil, in this particular case, is somebody who really achieved uh, an unknown kind of popularity with the mainstream at that particular time. So uh, I'm just using you as a symbol, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Collins, you're a creep. Uh, hello, it's uh, currently October 17, 2022. This is episode 121 of Behind the Schemes and coming all the way from the bereft coast where things are getting kind of cold around here my name is lavish also known as sir lavish and uh, i host this show usually with sir booberry mothman of the miniocalypse but he is not here tonight but that is all well and good uh welcome to the show uh, you listen to behind the schemes we're live every monday night 7 30 9 30 10 30 eastern respectively as the mothman would say and uh, we're just uh we're settling in it's a solo show here with me tonight uh, 
Uh, we got uh, everything running, I believe. Uh, smooth sailing as well. It's not usually that I that I'm kind of man in the helm here, but it's very exciting when I do, and I do love to to learn a little bit about everything. It's always a learning experience. That's the best thing about this show. Every single time we do this show, I learn something, uh, and it's very nice. And uh, we also have the show notes published as well right here. If you are interested in any of the things that I'm going to talk about tonight, uh, you can find everything that I've referenced in the show notes. The show notes are at zososcorner.substack.com, and you can find that uh, episode 121 of the first season. That's right, this is the first season still. Uh, we're 121 episodes long, and it's a season that's uh, worth checking out. We've covered a lot of ground, and you're more than welcome to to go back and see some of the things that we've talked about in the past. Everything from sex cults to the Georgia Guidestones to uh, a particular topic that I'm going to be bringing back up again tonight. I brought up probably about a year ago. I'm going to do a little follow-up action on it. It might have to do with uh, with succubi and with the the worship of fake demon girls that are half-naked on the internet and certain cults that are, are kind of developing around all that. But that's for a little later. It might be second, second half of show material. In the meantime, I uh, just uh, want to wish everyone a happy Monday. It's been, it's been groovy around here. Now, for every show, we like to pull a tarot card. And uh, tonight is no different. I pulled from the Starman Tarot, which is art that's based on David DeAngelis, uh, who made a lot of art for David Bowie. And David Bowie was the character that was being interviewed in that first opening uh, lick, that first opening clip that you heard. You know, everybody loves Bowie. It wasn't too long ago that we lost him. Well, I guess it was a little while ago now. I believe it was 2013. I remember it very vividly. I'm a big Bowie fan, so it was very sad when he went, and he went pretty young. But his legacy lives on uh, in many forms, in many, many forms, both visual and audio and otherwise, I would imagine. And this tarot deck uh, wouldn't exist in part without him and his art and his works. And the Queen of Wands has been drawn. The Queen of Wands reversed has been drawn today. Now, according to the book here that comes with the tarot uh, set, and just so you know, if you have a tarot set, it, it, a lot of times it comes with a book. If you're looking for a tarot set, try to get one that has, you know, a book. Because the books, they all have something different to say, even though the cards are the same, uh, relatively speaking, for, for all of these different sets. There's a lot of different ideas that are tied to, to each and every card. And uh, there's a lot of face value that you can get from looking at the card, but there's also a lot of hidden meanings as well. Now we have the reverse Queen of Wands. Well, upright is the way that this book will, will spell it out. The main uh, sort of thesis statement for the Queen of Wands is, I gracefully take center stage. Ooh, that's very nice. Uh, the Wands... Typically uh, represents like motivation. It represents uh, enthusiasm or, or a sense of direction or a sense of um, purpose that is in a very creative, very manifesty way where you're trying to you're trying to turn uh, lead into gold. You're trying to sort of make things happen for yourself 
in a very creative way, in a very ethereal way, as opposed to pentacles, which is wealth, or swords, which is sort of like a violent ambition. And this is all very generally speaking. Uh, but the Queen of Wands, the Queen of Wands, and I like this card because there's going to be a lot of queen energy uh, from some of the topics that we're going to discuss today. Uh, the Queen of Wands is a force to be reckoned with. Bold, daring, courageous, and extremely vivacious. Highly versatile and talented, she is passionate about the world she lives in and the domain that she rules. She sees the needs of her people, and they are of paramount importance, and she does her very best to envisage powerful solutions, thereby highlighting and pursuing many just causes. Um, and then Angelis goes on to say, I created this card thinking about the powerful feminine visionary, a beautiful balance of head and heart. Flanked by a cord of transfigured Minoan mother goddesses, she symbolizes the power of feminine principle to give life, reminding us to speak with the fire of passion and the integrity of the heart. The radical anthropo anthropologist Chris Knight put forward a powerful argument that women were key to our human mastery of complex language. That it was the deep connection of women regularly coming together at the time of their cycle and their development um, of complicated systems of herbal medicine, uh, for childbirth, uh, things like that, which catalyzed the complexity of interpersonal communication. The power of words to create our reality emerging from our female ancestors. I love that. That's very cool. Uh, that's very much in line with some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight. It's, uh, it, it may be considered ladies' night. We've got a slew of ladies to talk about tonight. And um, because I don't have a booby to, to bounce off of, I, I guess I won't need to roll any dice or anything like that. Usually, we roll a little dice to see who's going to go first. But um, just me. So, uh, regardless, you are listening to a value-for-value value production. Behind the Schemes is and always has been and probably always will be a value-for-value value production, which means that we don't have ads, we don't have any corporate sponsorship of any way, shape, or form. We don't like to do lame, cringy reads. Uh, we don't care about underwear or pillow companies. We just want to get the information out, and if you find value in this program, if you happen to be listening to it, you're already a producer. Sorry. Didn't mean to, to trap you into that. But... Uh, if you do find value in the things that we talk about, uh, you can always find us at BehindTheSchemes.com, and that's threes for ease and schemes. And you can, or you can go to our show notes at zososcorner.substack.com, and you can provide value back. If you get value, you provide the value back. And uh, that doesn't have to necessarily be financially. It can be with uh, a voicemail. You can leave us a voicemail at 612-263-7999. You can email me at lavish at behindtheschemes.com and uh, you can send art or music or even articles or information or stories that you may have had, boots on the ground reports of, of any strange happenings that have been going on in your world. Uh, anything like that. Uh, it all counts. And if uh, you do produce the show, well, then we'd like to thank our producers, which I will be happy to do at the beginning of the second half of show. But in the meantime... Uh, I do have a couple of boostograms to read off of, and uh, I, I I finagled a way to, to check all of that, and if I miss you, I am very sorry. Uh, we're working on certain, certain uh, platforms here, but from what I can see, 
you had, let's see here, uh, we have Pitar, I believe, October 17th, uh, 75.90 sat, saying, Wild Show, fellas, thank you. And Bully Steed, I believe, just sent this one in, or sent this one in relatively recently, 73.33 sats. Bully Steed says, last episode was so winging for the fences. That's very cool of you to say. Uh, in case I miss it, Sir Spencer, through CurioCaster, sent 2,300 sats. Uh, we very much appreciate that. And then everything else, I think, uh, came after. Rhizome Ryan sent 42. Bully Steed said, Canty Toast, my friends. I think I remember doing those ones last week. And for anyone who may be curious, a boostagram is a is a transaction of Bitcoin. People send us Bitcoin as well as American dollars, as well as whatever currency that you may transact in. Uh, we like to cover all the bases, and we have many ways that you can uh, do the uh, the Bitcoin thing, and you can find more about that at our website. We Or you can, you know, if you have uh, questions, you can ask us. It's all right to send us a little something. Send us a little something, you know, just through the... And, it's, and I mean little, I mean it's like most... You know, them are just like a buck, two bucks. But it all it all counts. It all matters. And most importantly, it's fun. Uh, we won't be having the uh, the audio boostergrams going in tonight because I wasn't able to access the helipad. But uh, if I do get boostergrams, who knows? Maybe I'll just do them myself. Um, I fancy myself. Uh, you know, I like to do impressions sometimes. And if I know what the, what the reference is on the boostergram, then who knows? I might just spit it out. But in the meantime, uh, I think that's really all I have to say about value for value. Uh, other than, of course, boost with the force. Let your feelings guide you. Rock and roll is here to stay. Hard ass blistering rock and roll. Dig. I both read and masturbate to tarot. Do a commercial. You're off the artistic roll call. Every word you say is suspect. You're a corporate whore. And uh, end of story. Tail set. <laughs> Hey, Tell me to get off your rocks. Get off the rocks. Get off your rocks and call 612-263-7999. Now, you can keep in mind that this is not going to be an open phone line. You don't have to worry about uh, interrupting anything or, or having to talk on air. You can simply leave a voicemail. It will be uh, anonymous. I won't screen it. I'm simply just going to play it on the air for your pleasure and for your leisure. And, uh, and that's really it. Oh, and you can also text as well. You can text 612-263-7999. And uh, I will read your text on the air as well. Now, I see that we may or may not have a, uh, a screen mail hanging in the wing. So let's see if this works. Uh, let's see if we can hear this. Oh, man, it's behind the schemes. So sorry that Boo Barry, Mothman of uh, laziness, couldn't, couldn't keep up and couldn't get to this uh, mile 14 that we're going to hit here in a second. But, Lavish, good job, man. You're making it. We're going to make it, man, mile 14, just a little bit. I don't know if uh, I'll be able to keep on talking, you know. It just depends on the time, but whatever, you know. But, man, good job. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you're doing a good job. 
but he's a pretty good job, you know, or an okay job, maybe, maybe just, you know, barely surviving or whatever, but good job with the episode right now, you know, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, how we doing, you know, a little mark out, but I got a flashy light on my chest, you know, I'm like, Iron Man only not, um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so, uh, scream, uh, scream, you know, uh, when the wife's gone for a few days, you know, and you just kind of get home and, like, you know, she's just not there, and you're just like, ah, just because, like, yeah, it's my best friend and all, like, yeah, so you're just like, oh, man, let me see I get home and, from work, and so she get out home after run or whatever, and just, uh, you know, they're not there, but whatever, you know, see in a couple days, and she's having a good time, so, anyway, but, yeah, I guess that's, that's the screen for the night. So, uh, I think I might lose you here in a second. But, anyway, we, we, we've we almost made it. So, got yourself a good job on the 14-miler the for the day. Wow, podcasting. Amazing. So You know it. All right. Well, love you, man. Love you. Stay dangerous. Keep the lights on while you're podcasting, though, because podcasting in the dark, you know, it's just weird. That's true. Running. So, all right. And whether it's light, whether it's dark, whether you're running or sitting in an easy chair. Ka-ka! Well, thank you, Bacaller. That's awfully kind of you. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, I believe that was Sir Christopher Battles. He was probably on a nice 14-mile run there. Uh, thank you. Uh, I love you, too. Uh, now, if you want to give us another call, uh, and and you want to you want to do it to it, well, you call me up at six one two two six three seven nine nine nine. Also, there's one other thing I'd like to mention. We do have our own Mastodon instance now. Uh, if you go to spook dot social, uh, if you want to find an alternative to lame Twitter, which is Rome burning, you just want to flee that sinking ship. Well. Then you want to probably get yourself onto a sort of a, oh, I don't know, open source, decentralized social media platform where uh, you get to say and do whatever you want and post, you know, whatever you would like and not be censored for trying to spread any kind of information that may be deemed uh, uncouth or taboo, perhaps. Uh, nothing extreme, of course, just standard stuff that people get censored for anyway. And you can go to spook.social, you can do it there. But, uh, yeah. And thank you for the call, uh, Sir Christopher Battles, Mr. Christopher Battles. Uh, again, 612-263-7999. It's for your very, very good health. Your very good health. Now, I suppose that I should get into the meat and the potatoes of what it is that we're going to be discussing today. Now, as you know... It is October 17th, 2022, which means that Halloween is just around the bend. And then after Halloween, the rest of the holidays, as it were. And it's time to get a little spooky. We like to talk about certain certain spooky things this time of year. I mean, to be honest, we like to speak about spooky things just about all times of the year. But this time of the year especially is time. And there's a figure that I've been meaning to kind of delve into and, and learn more about somebody who I've heard in passing from other uh, sources. And she seems to be sort of a, an interesting and massive figure of her time and place. 
And that would be Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, who I learned about uh, through certain things. Uh, Bill Cooper talks about her to a certain degree. She is a major figure of the New Age movement. And she is the founder of something called Theosophy, which is a religion that was established in the United States during the late 19th century, uh, a couple decades after the Civil War. And this religion was started uh, by her and uh, also a Civil War colonel by the name of Steve uh, Henry Steele Alcott. And uh, they basically made a religion from Blavatsky's writings. She was originally a Russian. She traveled all over the world, allegedly, and learned uh, from occultists from all over the world uh, certain ancient philosophies and certain religions, uh, Neoplatonism and Hinduism and Buddhism. And uh, she really popularized the ideas of Eastern occultism in the West in Europe in particular. And she developed a couple of ideas, or at least popularized a couple of ideas that carried on through to a certain uh, genocidal world leader that everybody knows. And, uh, and a lot of the ideas and a lot of the imagery that he used actually came kind of through her. Uh, the sort of little spiel, the sort of little poem, not even a poem, but just an opener, uh, it's an it's a version of the Trinity as expressed through the sort of Egyptian lens. Osiris is the doctrine, Isis is the church, and the child Horus is the body of illumined initiates. Um, this will have a lot of roots sort of in the, the secret schools. If you're familiar with, with me and, and kind of the way that I operate and the way that I see the world, it, it seems to me that there's a, a sort of a a fraternity perhaps is what you would call it or a certain organization that has been around for a very long time. And that really is their strength and power is the fact that they've just been around for a very, very long time. They're, they're, you know, 10 steps ahead of everybody in every way, shape and form. And I think really the, the main deal is like, if you can create a sort of a lineage or a sort of a, a longevity of a fraternity, that is the true way to, what we would call world domination or what we would call true power is, is multi-generational commitment to a, to a clause or to a goal of some manner. And this theosophy religion, while relatively new has uh, been around for roughly, Oh, I'd say about 150 years. And that's a good long while. That's a good long while. And there are people that are involved in that sort of thing. People that have, that have drawn from it. And there's a lot to say, about her influence on the New Age religion. Uh, they, the New Age movement, as it were, it originally kind of was, a, was rooted in the Knights Templar and, and you know Freemasonry and this sort of thing. And she came around and she kind of helped nudge it in the direction that it is today, which is very uh, Hindi, very Buddhist in nature, meditation, yoga, that sort of thing. Crowley, you know, borrows a lot from her in a certain sense. And she has a, a, a very strong presence in Eastern esotericism being present here in the Western world. I'll play a little uh, little intro clip for you, see, see if this helps you out. My dear friend died at 2.25 p.m. 
on Friday, sitting in her big armchair, her head supported by faithful Laura Cooper. In 1831, in the southern Russian province of Ekaterinslav, a daughter was born to the wife of Colonel Peter von Hahn. They named her Helena Petrovna. With her younger sister, she was raised mainly by her grandparents in an environment of Western sophistication, mixed with superstition and the popular Russian beliefs in spirits, witchcraft and magical customs and rites. Along with her growing love of music, from an early age she began to show signs of psychic abilities, which developed with her affinity for the love of nature around her. I have to admit, I used to enjoy frightening my little sister with tales of fearsome monsters and elemental creatures. <laughs> I would turn my grandmother's collection of stuffed animals into a dark jungle of predators and fear. I was provoked into marriage. The family always said nobody would ever want me. I was too headstrong, too irresponsible. To escape their control, I'm thinking I would have more freedom as a married woman. I accepted an army general named Blavatsky. I never consummated the marriage. And after three disastrous months, I left him and Russia. She went in search of occult knowledge. In North America, she lived with Red Indian tribes. She traveled through Greece, Egypt, and other parts of Europe. She even joined Garibaldi's army and was wounded at the Battle of Mentana. Then, on a visit to London in 1851, she at last met with a teacher whom she had only seen in visions when she was a child. He was a master of the wisdom, a Mahatma, who was to change the entire course of her life. Mahatmas were, were and still are, uh, a group of, a group of people who have, uh, through enormous self-discipline, mastered the essential nature of being human. They are, if you will, perfected men though some of them would claim that, that uh, even that term perfected is a relative term and that there is more to be achieved. Yet relative to our stage of evolution, they are, they ha they are perfected men. Now the Mahatmas are really an extension of the consciousness that we experience as self-conscious beings. If, as in her concept, consciousness slumbers in the material realms, becomes sentient in the plant and the animal kingdoms, become self-conscious in human beings as self-identity, self-awareness. In the Mahatmas, the extrapolation is it becomes supraconscious. That is, you become aware of your relationship to the source of your own existence, to consciousness per se. So the Mahatmas represent the evolutionary spearhead of humanity the evolutionary spearhead of humanity, the super race, if you will. They are wise, learned men, the Mahatmas. Uh, so yes, <clears throat> just to sum up, she's born in 1831 in Russia, the Russian Empire, to a rich arist aristocratic family. Uh, her and her family survived a cholera epidemic and other shocks of the time in relative luxury. And at 17, she married a 40-something general named Blavatsky, took his name, 
and then immediately escaped from him and hopped in a boat and uh, made a final escape from Russia on what would become a nine-year expedition around the world in search of knowledge. Uh, all of her travels during this time are virtually unsubstantiated. Uh, There are no contemporary records that confirm her whereabouts during this time, although she claims to have visited Tibet, India, Greece, other exotic locations, and uh, is said to have met and gleaned esoteric knowledge from all sorts of Mahatmas of these areas. Uh, There is a biographer named Marion Mead who has written extensively on Blavatsky and uh, basically says that hardly a word of what she says about this time period appears to be true. She was probably just slumming it around in Europe uh, on her daddy's dime. But nonetheless, learning everything she can about everything she can. And uh, she seems to collect knowledge and travel around. And and people seem to perceive her as a very worldly woman uh, who has uh, seen a lot of shit. Now, Blavatsky eventually makes her way to America. Uh, sort of later in life, after this sort of 10, 15 year period, she makes her way to America where she starts looking for occult organizations and she's uh, sort of investigating paranormal phenomena because at the time in the United States, uh, this sort of thing was in, in popularity. In 1874, her master sent her back to the United States where there was an increasing interest in the occult. She says she was sent to the United States to gather about her a group who would recognize brotherhood as a key objective, who would be open to the study of Eastern and Western uh, literature, knowledge, uh, the best philosophies of both. And she goes on to say, uh, we were not told what to do, but we were told what not to do. (laughs) A very interesting statement. So when she came, she thought it was perhaps through the spiritualist movement that this impulse of the exposition of the esoteric philosophy was to be given. But the spiritualists soon turned against her because they wanted only phenomena. America was ghost crazy, and Blavatsky found that seances were a frequent occurrence in most major cities, but she disagreed profoundly with what they thought they were experiencing. She was saying that... where you uh, communicate sometimes it's most certainly not with the departed uh, she would say i don't fully agree with this but this is what she said that it's with uh, this sort of residuum that, that she called an, an astral shell a sort of uh, record uh, of the memories and uh, Uh, I think that is the major reason why the spiritualists didn't like it. They thought they were uh, getting direct communications from the departed, standing there in their astral body, just like uh, we are here in the physical world, uh, speaking in their ordinary voice, presumably, and the medium hearing this with her clear audience and passing it all on to the sitter. Madame Levatsky said, it's not like that at all. It was during her pursuit of genuine spirit phenomena that she was to meet a Civil War colonel, Henry Olcott, who would become her lifelong friend and associate. They met in uh, in the United States, in Chittenden, Vermont, where he uh, had gone as a reporter for the Daily New York Daily Graphic uh, to see what were these phenomena 
that were taking place. And uh, she went there uh, because she heard of the phenomena of the Eddy brothers, and that is where they met. I must confess that when I first saw her, I thought of the most singular person. In fact, I recall remarking to Alfred Cap, rather rudely, I guess, good, good gracious, look at that specimen, will you? She made such a contrast to the drab farmhouse around her in her scarlet Garibaldi shirt. I knew she had to be foreign. Well, hearing her speak perfect French to her companion, I thought her Parisian, for we knew all kinds of odd things came out of Paris. There was something about her, imperious, yet at the same time sympathetic. You know, one of my hobbies was reading character from faces, and she had a masterful face, full of power. Yet there was refinement and culture in it, too. I followed her into the Eddie Garden. She rolled herself a cigarette and was searching for her matches when I took the opportunity to make her acquaintance. Permettez-moi, madame, I said. I lit her cigarette. We began to converse in French. She told me she was deeply interested in the phenomena described in the Daily Graphic. Even so, she had hesitated about coming. I had no idea who he was. I told him I was afraid this, this, this Colonel Olcott might drag me into one of his articles. You need have no fear on that score, madam, I told her. He won't mention you unless you permit it. I can assure you of that because I am Henry Olcott. <laughs> she laughed, unembarrassed, and introduced herself. It was the first time I'd heard that name that was to become so potent and important a factor in my life. And not only in his life, but uh, after his life. If you, you know, look up him and you look up his Wikipedia and all of that, then you'll find that him and Blavatsky are internally entwined and that their life's work uh, reflects itself well after they've been gone. And uh, the two names are basically inseparable as far as Theosophy is concerned. But anyway, Blavatsky does all this. She meets him. And uh, and she starts this religion, and this religion has all of these sorts of. I mean, it's very extensive. She writes seven volumes. She talks a lot about a lot of stuff, and I'm only going to focus on basically the, uh, you know, the Nazi shit. <laughs> the swastika was adopted by the Nazi Party in 1920, but it was neither the party's invention nor its discovery. Since the end of the 19th century, the swastika had been spreading amongst the peoples of Europe. And everywhere, it was a sign of a new and powerful force, a deepening fascination with the arcane, the esoteric, and the occult. The revival of the occult in Europe has its roots deep in the trauma of the Industrial Revolution. By the dawn of the 20th century, the lives of millions have been changed out of all recognition. Cities, the traditional centers of commerce and fashionable life, have been transformed into sprawling industrial slums. Yet, everywhere, the catchphrase is progress. Hmm. There is a widespread belief that a new world is coming. A world in which the ills of the past will be cured by science, by technology, and by democracy. Hmm. Sound familiar? Many, far from welcoming the dawn of a new age, are deeply disturbed. With the Industrial Revolution had come a decline in the power of traditional authority. 
the political power of the landowner is waning in favor of a new class of industrialists and financiers. Hierarchy is being threatened by democracy. It appears to many as if the world of beauty and order is disintegrating before their very eyes. Worst of all, religion itself seems in mortal danger. Cherished beliefs, accepted as true for all time, are being questioned by science. Now, I know what you're asking yourself. What does this have to do with Madame Blavatsky, a Russian who lived in the 17th century? What would an 18th century uh, political party in Germany have to do with this lady? The ancient Himalayan kingdom of Tibet. From the late 19th century, Tibet is the mysterious and forbidding destination of a steady stream of travelers from the industrialized world. Many, disillusioned with the certainties of science, come in search of another deeper knowledge. One such traveler is a Russian adventurous and self-proclaimed telepath, Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. In 1888, Madame Blavatsky publishes a book, The Secret Doctrine, in which she claims that deep in an underground Himalayan monastery, she has been shown an ancient occult text. In it were revealed the mystical secrets of the universe and the future course of human history. In The Secret Doctrine, Madame Blavatsky describes the universe as having fallen from pure spirit into base matter, darkness and chaos. But soon it will rise once more to reach the pinnacle of spirituality. Madame Blavatsky claims that this knowledge and more she has learned through initiation into the mysteries of seven esoteric symbols. Of these seven symbols, one she believed to be more potent than any other. The symbol is the swastika. In Tibetan mythology, the swastika is the sign of Agni the god of the sun, of fire, and of creation. And always, whether clockwise or anti-clockwise, whether curved or straight-armed, it is the symbol of good fortune. For Madame Blavatsky, each cycle of creation has associated with it seven stages of human evolution. Stages she calls root races. The race which will begin once more the ascent from darkness to the light of the spirit she names Aryan. In the occult teachings of Madame Blavatsky, the sign of the Aryan is the swastika. So, Blavatsky uh, lays claim to the popularization of the words Aryan, of the word Aryan, among other things, and uh, of the swastika as the sort of central symbol, the central rune, if you will. And... Um, there is a, a revival, a romantic revival of occultism, of paganism in Germany at this time and kind of all over Europe because of the Industrial Revolution going on. Uh, there is a, a severance from the natural world. There is a severance from the traditional world uh, in favor of a sort of a progressivism and a sort of a science-ism that is very much still in, in flow and flux today. Uh, and the, the entirety of the world is kind of wrapped up in this sort of technological progressivism. 
And the form, as we know today, really began around that time uh, with the development of petroleum and all these things that we've sort of talked about in the past. And Germany, being the industrial powerhouse that it is, is seeing the most extreme example of this. So the idea is, is that Hitler and, and the Nazi party are sort of borrowing elements of paganism and of old uh, ancient symbols and runes and incorporating it into the the image of, of what it is that they're trying to turn Germany into. This sort of nationalistic fervor is based in this very ancient sort of thing. Uh, and uh, it all kind of starts with Polvansky. The Nuremberg Rally of 1934 has as its theme a mystical concept, the triumph of the will. Homage is paid to a fundamental dogma in the Nazi creed of the swastika. Pure will, the expression of the soul of the race, will overcome the forces of darkness and of chaos. In the world of National Socialism, the race of light, of order and of the spirit is the Aryan race. Decades before the swastika was adopted by the Nazi party, a periodical published in Germany by an American occult society became the first German publication to carry a swastika on its cover. The society's founder was Madame Helena Blavatsky. It would be the followers of Madame Blavatsky who would introduce to the peoples of Germany and Austria the occult doctrine of the Aryan. The Prussian-Austrian War of 1866 had left German-speaking Austrians an isolated minority in a predominantly Slavic Austria-Hungary. By the early 20th century, an intense longing has grown for unification with Germany. Hundreds of German-Austrian societies are founded, committed to the romantic revival of ancient Germanic mythology. A folk federation with a membership of over 100,000 calling itself the Germanenbund holds festivals, founds a Germanic calendar, revives ancient rituals and appeals for unity in a new spiritual German nationhood. The Germanenbund was inspired by the writings of an Austrian mystic. An Austrian mystic, the Germanenbund. So yes, they start to incorporate festivals and an old Germanic calendar and ancient rituals and a sort of a new spiritual German uh, nationalism. Uh, they're, they're tapping into something that has always kind of been there and is something, something that has kind of wanted to creep through all along. Now, I'm looking in the chat, and it looks like uh, Gramerica's outfit did a reading of uh, Cosmogenesis by Blavatsky. Blavatsky is written in an ordinate amount of material, a uh, stupid amount. So there's no shortage of shit that she's written about. Uh, some of it's pretty good. A lot of it's just kind of reiterating whatever's going on. She was kind of a hoarder of knowledge, you know. She didn't She didn't uh, filter out very much. She liked to just bring everything and absolutely everything and absolutely everything into the fold. But it is another individual who was born in Vienna in 1848 uh, who also, like Blavatsky, is a, a self-proclaimed psychic and a telepath, uh, but this uh, Guido von Liszt character comes in, 
and sort of finalizes the ideas of these runes being part and the glyphs being part of the the visual element that all kind of ties this together and makes it rather romantic. Guido von Liszt, born in Vienna in 1848, claimed to have psychic visions of the past in which he was initiated into the secrets of the ancient Teutonic tribes. Liszt's visions told him of a Germanic religion, the worship of the god Wotan. His dream is to rediscover the occult heritage of its long-vanished priesthood. According to Norse legend, the god-magician Wotan, leader of the dead heroes of Valhalla, had won by suffering a priceless store of esoteric knowledge. He had discovered the secret of the runes. Liszt knew that the runes were the alphabet of a primitive system of writing. But to Germanic peoples from the second century to the Middle Ages, they were also magical symbols. Symbols which Liszt believed possessed a deep esoteric meaning. Far, the rune of wealth, wandering and destruction. Ur, the rune of wild oxen, regeneration and sacrifice. North, the compulsion of fate. Sieg, the rune of the sun and of victory. Kind of, uh, if anybody's a gamer out there, it kind of reminds you of Skyrim. <laughs> very lame and nerdy thing to tie it to. But I can tell you that all of that sort of is very much borrowed from all of this. These runes and these sorts of words, Fa, Ur, Nied, Sieg, uh, Fusroda. And these images, if you see them, and there are, uh, I've posted a couple of images of them in the show notes, you'll recognize them. You'll swear that you've seen them somewhere before, especially the Sieg, the rune of the sun and of victory. This is uh, basically a, a nice sharp S in the shape of a, a lightning bolt. And it is the, the symbol of the SS, of the uh, secret police of the Nazis. And it's also the image of the, uh, if you know the band Kiss, then the two S's in Kiss are this rune as well and uh, we all know that uh our, our good friend sir, sir booberry he's he's a big kiss fan so he's very familiar with this and we've talked about it um in the past but if you want to go there again zosa's corner.substack.com sieg the rune of sun and of victory and you'll find over and over again that the sun is a big central focal point of all of this. It's a lot of it goes back to a certain form of sun worship. Earlier, they were talking about uh, the swastika being the sign of Agni, and Agni is the sun, uh, the god of sun. It's a it's a the Vedic fire deity of Hinduism that represents the sun and fire and creation. Uh, so, lightning and the sun in mythology, over and over and over again, no matter where you are in the world, uh, tend to be the most powerful gods of all, and the most powerful symbols of all. And Lord knows the lightning, uh, the sea uh, rune, is, is very, you know, it's a very pretty thing. It's very striking. It strikes you like lightning. The swastika, on the other hand, is more like a, a fire whisk, if you will. It's like, uh, it's like the... <laughs> the uh, the mixer in your kitchen, you know, that 
brings everything together and creates something uniform and, and beautiful. That's my weird metaphor and way of putting it, but eh, I think it works. To Guido von Liszt, runes were the key to the occult knowledge of the ancient Germanic peoples. Within a decade of his death in 1919, the runes would have become elements in a new language, the language of National Socialism. The Sieg Victory Rune, emblem of the Hitler Youth. The Double Sieg, emblem of the Schutzstaffel, the SS. Schutzstaffel! The Apple Rune, symbol of Richard Walter Dare's Ministry of Agriculture, the Rune of Inheritance, the Rune of German Soil. The Man Rune, the Rune of Death, which in time will replace the cross in the graveyards of the SS. That's pretty hardcore. Study of the runes is required of all SS officers. Of the many strange and mystical symbols which have found a place in the new order of National Socialism, one dominates all others. von Liszt called the swastika the twice-high holy secret of constant generation. He recounts a Nordic tale in which the god Mundel Fiori whisks the cosmos into being. The swastika is the fire whisk, the very act of creation. Oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta put in some of that music. I, I tried to cut out a lot of that stuff because there's a lot of space in between where they play a lot of horns and there's a lot of marching noises. And I, I cut most of it out, but some of it I had to keep in because it just, it sets it up so nice. I really just like the, 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 the feeling and the vibe of this video that, uh, and by the way, that's in the show notes as well. You can find that. The whole video, which is much, much longer. And I have clipped it for brevity. So the swastika uh, becomes this sort of major symbol in Germany in the turn of the 20th century. And what ha what else happens at the turn of the tw uh, 20th century? Well, it's what they call the Great War, and what we call World War I, because Lord knows there's going to be more of them. For the first time in history, the might of industry is unleashed on the battlefield. Nothing could have prepared the peoples of Europe for slaughter on such an unimaginable scale. As the war grinds on and casualties mount, frontline soldiers on both sides of no man's land take to the wearing of charms and amulets. In the ranks of Germans and Austrians, the most popular of all magic talismans is the swastika. The swastika medallions and amulets worn in the trenches of the Great War are based on the researches of Guido von Liszt. By now, an influential and wealthy society devoted to the teachings of the master has already been formed in Vienna. It is the Liszt Society, which supplies designs to the manufacturers of swastika talismans. The swastika, now spreading amongst the German armies, is fast becoming the emblem of militant German nationalism. 
but since 1908, it had acquired another, even more ominous meaning. Shortly before the outbreak of the Great War, Liszt had incorporated the occult teachings of Madame Helena Blavatsky into his own German mythology. Now he no longer refers to ancient Germans or Teutons. Instead, the tribes who populate his visions, he names Aryans. Bombs. War. In Madame Blavatsky's writings, the Aryans are the race of upward spiritual evolution, the race whose sign is the swastika. In Hitler's Mein Kampf, the meaning of the swastika to the Nazi party is made clear. In the swastika, he writes, we see the mission for the struggle for the victory of Aryan man. Oh boy, don't we ever. Yes, indeed. So it all comes full circle and the man, eventually Hitler himself, finds these teachings and incorporates them into everything that we know since. The rest is history, as they say. Another aside on this, there seems to be a loose affiliation of this symbol to the Z symbol, which is a prominent military symbol in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, which is going on at present, this being uh, October of 2022. And you see it a lot. If you, if you pay attention at all to any of this, uh, to any of the war footage coming through, you'll see very often a Z graffitied on to military vehicles and, and uniforms and people put it, you know, patches on themselves and Z apparently is, is, is a big deal over there. And it also means victory. Uh, they have a V on there as well. And a lot of these runes sort of borrow themselves because they themselves are glyphs letters, even the letters today, they are glyphs of a certain manner. And they, when you see it, it invokes in you an emotion. It invokes in you an abstract idea that becomes concrete with the anchor of this image. And that sort of is the idea behind runes in general. I like to sort of think about the magic of old when they talk about these ancient religions and, and magic. It's still around. It's just we take it for granted. It's, uh, it's, it's normal to us, but it was magic to them. But the Z definitely has sort of swastika connotations, and, and it means victory, and it means uh, triumph, triumph over others. There's all the sort of parallel with, uh, with the <laughs> the Holy Roman Empire as well. They're all about triumphs. They're all about these big prominent letters, SPQR, SQPR, SPQR, certain things like that. Every great civilization has an attraction towards letters and glyphs. Now, on Volvatsky, I, I really don't want to say too much more about her because you can go on and on. As a matter of fact, there's somebody who you may have heard of, his name is Osho, uh, of the Rajneesh fame. You may have seen him, uh, they, they made a great documentary on him. Uh, he made a, a crazy sex cult out in the, in the woods of Oregon. Uh, had just a ton of money. Very, very interesting character. And we clip him around here all the time. And he had something to say in Lofotsky. And this is what he had to say, and I quote, uh, he's talking about various religions. He says, now I bring in a woman. I have been thinking again and again to bring in a woman, but the men are crowding the door. They won't allow a woman in. And that woman has somehow managed to enter. And my God, what a woman. Madam Blah Blah Blavatsky. 
And that's how I always call Blavatsky. Blah, blah. She was great at writing blah, blah. Writing everything about nothing. Making mountains out of molehills. And I knew that she would be the first woman to enter. She was a strong woman. She somehow managed to push aside all these other guys and enter with her seven volumes of, of the secret doctrine. And it's almost like an encyclopedia, an encyclopedia esoterica. Nobody, I think, can compete with Blavatsky as far as esoteric esotericism is concerned, except for me, of course. I can write 700 volumes, and I have avoided speaking on it because I could speak 700 volumes on her seven. Um, Blavatsky, poor woman, I pity her, and I love her too, in spite of her face, which is not lovable. He calls her ugly. Not even likable. What to say of love, her face could only be used to frighten children when they are doing something nasty. Blavatsky had a very ugly face, and I pity the woman. But in the world of men, made by men, dominated by men, she is the only woman who asserted, dominated, and started her first religion. First religion ever by any woman, theosophy. Uh, she competed with Buddha, with Zarathustra, with Muhammad. And I thank her for that. Somebody needed to do it. The man has to be put in his place. And I thank her for that. The secret doctrine, although so full of esoteric bullshit, has many beautiful diamonds too, and many lotuses. There is much rubbish in it because she was a collector, and she went on collecting all kinds of rubbish from everywhere possible, without bothering whether it was useful or not. She was great at putting all that useless nonsense in a systematic way, a very systematic woman. But there are few, sad to say, only a few diamonds here and there. So that was his take on Blavatsky. I know, very rude. Rude guy. Uh, he was kind of a kind of a freaky-deaky one, that, that Osho. And yes, Bully Steed is right in the chat. Excellent documentary, Wild Country, about the cult that ran in Oregon. Very, very interesting. Now, my last thoughts on Blavatsky, and of course, if you're interested, you can always find more. There's plenty of references in the show notes, plenty of references all over the place, and I encourage you, if you have interest in this sort of thing, to do your own research and to go and check it out for yourself. But the final thing I'll say about this lady is that she is uh, associated with a certain publishing company, certain publishing house, which originally started as a thing called Lucifer Magazine and then evolved into what is now called the Lucis Trust. And you can find that at lucistrust.org, L-U-C-I-S trust.org. It is a sort of a publishing company that is dedicated to the establishment of new age thinking. And they do a lot of new age publishing. And they seem to have a massive connection with the United Nations. Of all things, they have been pegged, if you will, to publish uh, things for the United Nations. So I thought that that was very, a very interesting alliance between this extremely new age, extremely culty organization and the United Nations, who uh, we've always said is kind of culty, kind of one world ordery, kind of, kind of spooky in a way, you know, they've got these massive arms of influence and they borrow from all sorts of places. And uh, yeah, you can check that out. Uh, Lucis Publishing. Uh, very, very, very close with the United Nations. Uh, yeah, pegged, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, Servo? I love using that term. It's been completely uh, deconstructed and turned into something else. Very, very sexual. Uh, speaking of sexual, 
for a second, second half of show, we're going to be talking about goddesses and demons of sexuality. Uh, so please stick around if you can. Right now, I believe, is a pretty decent time to take a little break. I know that there was a lot of uh, information concerning Madame Blavatsky. And, uh, and I didn't even really get into all the stuff that Bill Cooper says about her because he kind of just associate, associates her with Freemasonry and that sort of thing. And it seems a little heavy handed, honestly, but you can find all of the, all the stuff that I wrote up about it in the show notes. Those corner.substack.com. Also, uh, why not? I'm going to check and see actually real quick before the intermission, if we had any voicemails come through and we did. Oh, here we go. I'm going to play this voicemail. Congratulations on Ladies' Night, Luvish, Lavish, and Happy International Day for the erratic the eradication of poverty. Woo! Congratulations, people! We did it. Suffer for it, I assure you, I will suffer for it. Hope you enjoy our mission.
turn to Behind the Schemes. Starring Booberry, Berry, 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 And Lavish, 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 Lavish. Well, hello there. Welcome to second, second half of show. It is currently October 17th, 2022. It is 9 o'clock, 9.02 p.m. precisely here on the Pacific Coast, which means it's about 11.02 p.m. on the Central, you know, which means that it is about, uh, oh, about midnight in the sewer over there on the East Coast, on the Beast Coast. So to all of you over on the Beast Coast, uh, happy midnight in your sewer. And a big job less from across the continent here. A nice 3,000-mile tip of the hat to you. Uh, and yes, that last song, Thank You Servo, was Halizna Pretty Witches. I hope you guys liked the uh, somewhat abstract intermission this evening, but the occasion called for it. Uh, my name is Lavish, and uh, Boo Berry, Mothman of the Miniocalypse, I believe, is over on the East Coast himself. We host the show every single Monday night at 9.30, uh, 9.30, sorry, 7.30 Pacific, 9.30 Central, and 10.30 Eastern. That's every single Monday night that you can find us at badradio.live. It's badradio.live. And uh, it's pretty simple. You can just find us there. Uh, but I would really recommend getting in the chat room. The chat room is something that I did not recommend uh, at the beginning of the show, and I regret that because... I had to take a deep breath, you know. I This is only maybe the second time that I've really done a solo show. And uh, I think uh, I'm having a great time. There's no doubt about it. But it's just a new experience. A new start, if you will. And uh, just trying to cover all the bases. But um, as it is, the chat room, if you go to... Uh, well, you can't go to irc.zeronode.net, unfortunately... But you can go to our website at BehindTheSchemes.com, and that's threes for ease and the word schemes, BehindTheSchemes.com, and you can go and find the chat room there through the Kiwi client, through your browser. Very easy to do. Very, very simple. You don't need to do a password. You just need to come up with a dumb name, and uh, bing, bang, bong, you're in there. And if you happen to be at irc.zeronode.net on one of your IRC clients, well, you can always just type in a backslash join hashtag green room. Green room being one word. And you just say, hey, come on in. This is where the party's happening. And the party's here every Monday night. And for that matter, it's also in hashtag hog story, which is hosted by Carolyn Blaney and John Fletcher. And they are also live every single Monday night. And they go live about, oh, I would say 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, uh, and 8 p.m. Eastern. And you can find them at hogstory.net. Uh, we're part of a, a community. And uh, I can't recommend their show enough. It's really, really fine show. We are all value-for-value value shows. And we all operate in a value-for-value value network. And value for value simply means that we don't have paywalls. We don't have paid subscriptions. We only have public support. It means we don't have to do reads. We don't have to do any commercials. We don't have to suck any fucking dick. We get to say whatever we want. 
we're one of those late night shows. Sometimes we talk about shit that, you know, just isn't on TV. Okay. That's the beauty of this whole thing. That's the whole point. And it's why we're here. And uh, those who come in with financial contributions of any way, shape, or form, whether it be through the United States dollar or through cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, uh, we would like to thank those people at the beginning of second, second half of show, every single show, we like to thank them. And uh, they deserve it. Because there are some people around here that really help us keep the lights on, and we appreciate it very, very much. And those people are our honorary freaks of hazards tonight for episode 121. Uh, coming in is Coffee Von Dustbubble. She is coming in with her recurring payment of $3.33. Thank you, Coffee. Thank you very much. Uh, we also have a recurring payment coming in from a Bayern Giant. Not recurring. I actually take that back. But you never know. It could be recurring. But Bayern Giant or Bayer N Giant or Bayer N Giant comes in. Uh, with a with a double header, he 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 gave us this I think last week, and he gave us this week. You got three dollars and thirty three cents. Job blessed to you, sir, and thank you very much for your contribution. Also, coming in, and our executive freak tonight is none other than the Sir Manny. Comes in with a whopping sixty six dollars and sixty nine cents. Nice, nice. That's a number that has, if <clears throat> for anybody who doesn't realize, it has 666 and it has 69. That's a great number. It's a beautiful number, and I think it's become now one of my favorite ones. Very Satan-y, very sexy. Thank you very much, Sir Manny, for being our executive freak tonight. Now, oh, excuse me. Had to uh, cough a little bit there. Suck no dick, says fucking Larry, and he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, those are our uh, official freaks of hazards for the evening. And then, of course, if you call in, you can still be a producer uh, of the show. Uh, we like to play uh, all, all screen mails that may come in, and text as well. If you're voice shy, you can just text something, and it's totally anonymous. I mean, like, I don't, I don't save any of the phone numbers. That's a lot of work, so I don't do that. Uh, that's uh, that's bullshit. That's totally bullshit. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta hit this one one more time. Boost with the force. Let your feelings guide you. Rock and roll is here to stay. Hard ass blistering rock and roll. Dig. I both read and masturbate to tarot. Do a commercial. You're off the artistic roll call. Every word you say is suspect. You're a corporate whore. And uh, end of story. Hail set. <laughs> Hey, Tell me, get off your rocks. Get off the rocks. Yeah, I never have done that. We've never done that twice, but I just did it twice because I just did it. So it's been done. Uh, anyway, behind the schemes. Thank you, everybody, for the value. value. Uh, we really appreciate it. And the Boostergrams as well. Podcasting 2.0 is the shit. And uh, it's, a, it's a good time. It's, it's nice to be a part of it. And I know that Booberry, of course, appreciates it as well. As well. <sighs> now, have you ever heard of the goddess Ishtar? 
Ishtar is a Babylonian goddess. And uh, the star of Ishtar is a very prominent symbol that you've probably seen before. Uh, perhaps in the motion picture Eyes Wide Shut, for example. Or if you've ever seen a simple Christmas star or a star of Bethlehem, then you will be familiar with the general shape and form of a star of Ishtar. But Ishtar herself is a, is a very interesting character. Uh, Ishtar is probably the original goddess, uh, at least of the Semitic world or something of, of that nature. Uh, as far as Europe is concerned, she is the oldest known goddess, major goddess, that is. She isn't just any uh, sort of like uh, side figure in the mythos of anything. She's depicted through art that has somehow survived thousands of years, uh, four or five thousand years to be exact, to be closer to the real number, I would say. Uh, Ishtar has the goods. She's a, she's a goddess of several things. In Mesopotamian mythology, Many of the deities and heroes can at times seem larger than life, with their imposing presence, dedicated worship, and tremendous power, all of which were conducive of life on earth. In some instances, the gods, most notably Enlil, are so revered that they allow humanity to live, whilst other gods, like Enki, bargain in favor of humanity bidding to ensure their survival. In any case, the gods were seen as a conduit for life, and without them, in some way or another, humanity would perish. Yet despite these formidable entities, it is the Sumerian goddess Inanna, otherwise known as Ishtar by the Akkadians, Assyrians and Babylonians, who appears more frequently in the stories than any other god or hero. As the goddess of love, sensuality, fertility, and even war, she certainly had more than enough influence to go around, and perhaps might have even overshadowed some of the more popular deities, given the broadness of her powers. In fact, she would be known to such an extent that it was believed that she was the inspiration behind the Hitti goddess, Sorska, a goddess of fertility, healing, and war, the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, and or the Roman goddess Venus, who also represented love, beauty, sex, and desire. This sort of energy and the star itself, and Venus itself being the star in the east and being the, the, the false sun, the morning star, and as such... Um, direct relation to Lucifer or to Satan in that sense, to have her be in this, if you look at it through that sort of a, a perspective, love, sensuality, fertility, and war, that could be a Lucifer. That could be something in that sort of a vein. Um, this character has a broad array of powers, and the way that they know about it is through how she looks and what she wears and what she has in her hands on clay tablets. That's how you know. That's the basis for everything that we know about Sumerian culture. All the things that we learned about in school, which the first thing you learn about 
in any sort of history class is you learn about Mesopotamia. You learn about the Fertile Crescent. You learn about Babylon. This is the beginning of everything. It's the at least the oldest thing that we know of and that we accept as a, as a massive culture that this, yes, existed and had this priority at that time. And it belongs to an ancient world that we have no real way of knowing much about because it was so long ago and there's so very little that exists now that carries over any sort of record of that sort of thing. And what we do have is we have clay tablets, we have steels uh, that uh, hold, uh, you know, they have massive pieces of hard rock that somebody went through the trouble to make an impression of or to carve words into. And when it comes to this goddess, she really is nothing more than a collection of various pieces of art that have made it through the eons. And, uh, and just pu- piecing them together and comparing them. I go, yeah, this is, this is somebody. We'll, we'll call her this because this is what they were at reference to in this scribbling on this stone somewhere and blah, blah, blah. And somehow over time, these things, they, they calcify and they establish themselves as, as a, a reasonable conclusion that everybody shouldn't question. And this is the, this is the speed of science, people. It's the speed of science. Uh, Anyway, she's a queen of the night. A goddess from Babylon. What image does that conjure up for us today? Babylon was cursed in the Bible, called the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth in Revelation 17.5. This is one Western idea of what it was like. But if we go back 4,000 years to the foundation of the old Babylonian age, we see a different picture, more fascinating and much stranger to us. Probably you did not envision a clay plaque of a nude woman, partly animal and partly human, and quite terrifying in its strangeness. It confronts us very directly. What do we feel? What does it mean? This fascinating and beautiful masterpiece of old Babylonian art from the early second millennium BC has both mystery and quite a history. It was acquired by the British Museum to celebrate its own 250th anniversary in 2003. No one was totally sure what goddess was represented. Scholars argued about it. Rumors swirled for 50 years or more. Was it authentic? Was it really almost 4,000 years old? Some experts doubted it, partly because it was so unusual, so strange, and so interesting. It was a curious mixture of the erotic and the terrifying. And it was undoubtedly mesmerizing and beautifully shaped, a testament to old Babylonian artistic skill. Yes, indeed. And this is the Bernie Relief, I believe is how it's pronounced. You can find it in the notes at zososcorner.substack.com and you will find this picture of this goddess that they're talking about on this clay tablet. Beautiful impression, very well preserved, apparently from 4,000 or 3,000 BC uh, at the latest according to their records, because apparently they have paint on the thing and the paint they can use to do certain uh, tests and certain aging methods. Uh, 
Kind of an interesting thing. But the time period that they're talking about, as far as we know back, 3000 BC, 2000 BC is really the beginning of Babylon in earnest as a major city. And that sort of occurs under uh, Hammurabi. But we'll get to that a little later. The, uh, the Babylonian culture and the Babylonian image is very much promoted through the Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Christian Bible. The ancient tribes of Judah were captured and were brought there as slaves. Uh, maybe not ancient is not the right word, but it was around 600 BC. Nebuchadnezzar II uh, besieged Jerusalem, and he destroyed the first temple, Solomon's temple, and he dragged uh, a huge amount of the population of Judah back to Babylon. And as such, uh, in their, what they call the exile, but it's, you know, the, the I don't know, the capturing, the bringing, whatever you want to call it, the captivity uh, in Babylon heavily influenced them and the customs and the rituals of Babylon would become the customs and rituals uh, of Judaism, or at least a good amount of them will be heavily influenced. And, uh, and the culture of the Babylonian Empire kind of shapes the Western world in this way. It has that influence. And a lot of it is ripped from that. And it's presented, Babylon is sort of presented in the Bible, especially in, particularly in Revelation, when they call it Mystery Babylon, the whore Babylon, is that it has a, it has a pagan, filthy, a huge animosity towards this thing. This is what should be killed. This is everything that's wrong with the world. This is everything that's impure and, and purely based on, you know, a lawless and formless way of living that, you know, we're trying to eradicate with this, with what we're doing. And that is sort of the, the image that Babylon is placed in. That's the light that it's cast in. But Babylon was a major deal. Uh, it enjoyed importance for a very long time. Uh, from the times of Hammurabi, which is around 2000 BC, uh, until right up until Alexander the Great uh, uh, in 323 BC. Uh, many, many years later, he, Alexander the Great, after his big conquest and after his big uh, trials, he, where he conquered fucking most of the known world and had to stop at India and turn back, he died in Babylon because Babylon was still the great city of the time, of the East. So Babylon is a, is a very, very cool place where gods seem to dwell. Hammurabi was the king who started Babylon on the path to success and greatness. It was a backwater city and not so prominent beforehand. In the second millennium BC, Babylon became known as a center for knowledge and religious activity. We shall see in our next lecture how, even more than a thousand years later, Babylon was still a great center, a stronger power, and producer of some of the greatest artworks of the time. But let's return to our goddess. Here we see a kind of object that was worshipped and regarded as sacred to Babylonians of this time. The plaque is absolutely unique. Here, in this work of art, we have one of the rarest of rare objects, an actual cult image of a goddess who was worshipped in Mesopotamia. We have nothing else quite like it. Why would a cult image be so rare? If you recall from our earlier lecture on the Royal Cemetery at Ur, we looked at the goat, a ram in a thicket. It was a sort of cult stand, we think, 
and was made of the most expensive and luxe materials, gold, lapis, shell, and so forth. We believe that statues of the gods, which were placed in temples, were usually composed of these same expensive materials like gold. Therefore, none of them made it down to our modern era intact. Most old gold and precious metals were melted down over the centuries for other uses, unfortunately. For instance, almost all the Inca artwork of gold, the riches of Peru, were seized by the conquistadors for the Spanish crown and subsequently melted down. They, too, mostly had gods wrought from gold. Mm -hmm. But there weren't only images in the main temples. There were images of gods in lesser places, including businesses and homes, and these could be made of humbler substances, like clay. Unfortunately, not too many of these survived either, but this plaque is most likely one of them. Even with its humbler nature, it was meant to be a place... They were made of precious metals, and they were the least likely to survive through the eons, intact. Uh, through numerous generations, they're discovered, they're melted down, they're stolen. Um, whereas clay, clay tablets, uh, they're you know somewhat frail, but they have the advantage of being made of virtually worthless material. They're useless. They're useless to plunderers. They're useless to treasure seekers. And, and uh, that's somehow an advantage. So that's why we have a lot of clay and then stone as well which used to be much more valuable. You have uh, things like the Louvre st steel or stell, uh, which are carved from basalt or basalt. And that had to be transported at great expense back, back in those days. And there are certain things, very important pieces of work, like Hammurabi's Code. We're talking about Hammurabi. Hammurabi's Code is definitely something that you learn about in school. It's one of the oldest known systems of law, uh, in the world and it is basically three massive stones that they found that were made together and they topped them on top of one another and they make this giant sort of you know penisy rock where all of the code is written on it and then there's a big relief of Hammurabi himself talking to Shumash the sun god or Utu the sun god and guess what? They're both wearing penis hats, too. The whole thing is real penisy. I don't know what to tell you. You can see it for yourself at zososcorner.substack.com. But one of the ways that they uh, see what gods are and what kings are is by, as I said before, what they wear. And in this case, the easiest thing to notice is their hats, little dick hats. The king only has one uh, bump, whereas the the... God has like rivets, a bunch of shit going on on the hat. And that's what people, the gods have is they have these crazy riveted fucking for her pleasure hat, uh, hats. This is, I know this is very penisy. I'm sorry. I didn't intend for this to get so penisy. Uh, but yeah, uh, let's see here. What else we got going on? Uh, we got a bunch of reliefs in the, uh, in the show notes. If you want to see it, we have multiple images of, uh, Ishtar forming the star, the supposed star that she had. There's in particular this uh, this relief in stone of Meliashipak II. And he's talking to a god, Shamash, the uh, the sun god. 
And there's three images above. One is uh, the star, one is the moon, and one is the sun. The rays of the sun creates a, a sun disk, whereas the star of Ishtar is the eight-pointed star. And I should have I should have said something about that earlier. But it is an eight-pointed star and looks very much like every single Christmas star that you've ever seen put on a tree. Tr- tr- traditional, classic Christmas star. And uh, this is one of many famous instances of the star on one of these ancient little carvings here. And that's from, oh, 12th century BC. Uh, and then I have a basic uh, image of it there, and then the the screenshot of it from Eyes Wide Shut, which, if you didn't know, is Stanley Kubrick's last film, and it was made, uh, a, it's a film about secret societies and about elitist, hyper-elitist, secret goings-ons and orgies and whatnot. And the whole movie is is heavily lit with Christmas lights and decorations, and it's set during the Christmas period. And the only time that you don't see Christmas lights in the Star of Ishtar is when he is able to get access to these, you know, guarded doors where spooky shit happens, and you know, in secrecy. And uh, that's the only time you don't see Christmas lights. What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. Uh, when we talk about that movie, a given date. We'll probably have another movie night soon. That'll be fun. We definitely have to do that. It's very important. Um, and I also have a picture of the Star of Bethlehem. Because the Star of Bethlehem looks just like this shit. And in every, in every rendition I've seen from every sort of Christmas cartoon or or old show that I've seen, this is the way that they show a bright shining star is with this sort of eight-pointed geometry. It doesn't need to be filled out. It could just be rays of light that shoot out in an equilateral... Uh, anyway, it's great. It's beautiful. Check it out. Uh, the Star of Ishtar, uh, associated with Venus, associated with the morning star, the star in the east, the star of Bethlehem, or the sun, or the false sun. Uh, star of Inanna is another word for eight points, the exact number of points sometimes varies. Six-pointed stars also occur. Uh, in later times, it was the most common symbol for Ishtar. Let's see here. If I have... Oh, we have uh, one more clip on the Bernie relief. How was this made? It appears to be a terracotta mold-made plaque. First, clay was mixed with chaff then pressed into a master clay mold, and then fired in a kiln. The chaff burnt off, leaving the surface slightly pitted, as you see it today. But originally, it was covered with paint and very brightly colored. Enough of some tiny bits of paint survived so that the plaque could be tested and reconstructed in color. It's a little gaudy compared to the plain buff clay, But even Greek statues, which we think of as marble alone, were painted in antiquity. The plaque is 20 by 15 inches and not very deep, but it is sculpted in the high, rounded relief, which was typical of the old Babylonian period. You just saw that in Hammurabi stela of the law code. Now we're looking at a voluptuous nude woman who is represented frontally and almost completely symmetrically. She stands on two smallish lions 
and two largish owls are placed on either side of the lions. Usually in Mesopotamia, with this kind of cult object, the gods would be shown frontally and in a static and symmetrical position. They would be easily identified by their accompanying emblems, tools, and animals that were customarily associated with them. We immediately know that we are dealing with a major goddess when we look at the woman's head. Why? Because she wears a multiple-horned crown, one that signifies a major deity. This crown is just like the one on the clay figure of a male deity of the same period, also in the British Museum. Our Lady has a plump, rounded face, and her eyes, whose inlay is now lost, are emphasized by the joined eyebrows, which are so typical of Mesopotamian art. Her hairdo is rather complicated. It looks like she may have on a heavy wig or a bun, and possibly some thick masses of bound hair or braided, looped locks, like this goddess. Our queen has a slightly upturned mouth. She stands with both elbows out, displaying two symbols of the rod and ring in each hand. Her necklace was quite heavy. It looks like it was beaded and is now partially destroyed. She wears three bracelets on each wrist, so despite her nudity, she's very well coiffed and bejeweled. Those might be clues to her identity, since goddesses like Ishtar were known to wear lovely jewels. If you look at her body, it's very naturalistically modeled. You have the soft curves of her hips and high breasts, which do not show nipples. She has rounded but slim arms and a small waist. She has a realistic-looking deep navel, but her pubic area is modeled delicately and not overly emphasized. Her hip bones are high up and her thighs swell slightly. Her legs are held stiffly together. All this makes her curvaceous and appealing, but not muscular like Naram Sin. Beneath her knee, though, our goddess ceases to be entirely human. She has what has been interpreted as a dew claw on the side of each calf. Her feet are the feet of a raptorial bird. She has talons with three toes on each foot, and the scutes, that's the scale-like skin, are indicated by parallel incised lines. Yeah, that's right. She's got animal legs. Uh, pretty lady with animal legs. And you can see all of this in the show notes. Zososcorner.substack.com Check it out there. Ishtar, the OG. And uh, the tools that she has. The tools of the gods, the hat of the gods. And then, of course, she's got giant sort of talon leg feet things. And she's standing on some lions and she's standing with some owls. And lions and owls, if you know, those are the ones. Those are the big ones. Those are the that's the that's the Rothschilds' coat of arms. That the owl is is the fucking Moloch, super duper prevalent image everywhere, all the time, especially in Freemasonry. Massive, massive image. So this all ties into the great big mystery school, the great big club. 
the original, the, the template upon which all others are built. And history tends to repeat itself. History tends to at least rhyme, as they say. And uh, although the gods of old are mostly gone from at least the sort of society that we live in, there is a weird and strange energy that I think is maybe related to this that exists on the internet. And the internet, as you well know, is the new church. It is the new temple. And those who can work the web, those who uh, can work with computers and make things and and uh, make money doing it and, and have big tech companies and do all of that. And everybody that operates in that in that elitist technical sphere, they are the new clergy. They are the ones. There are great wealthy, uh, I don't know, cardinals, and then there are humble priests and men of the cloth that exist in all different hierarchies and, and wealth levels and skill levels and all of that, and levels of influence, and they're all over the world. And uh, the internet is the new church. And uh, people create little little churches of themselves within the church. And there happens to be, in the deep recesses of a little place called 4chan, maybe you've heard of him, there exists a general thread which I have brought up before. And this general thread is a place where men and women discuss, by a, a thread, for those who don't know, it's an ongoing internet forum. Um... There's a place where men and women discuss how to summon succubi, succubus, for their material and sometimes sexual desires. Although, I think, uh, I think material works as well. They want, they want, I don't know, servants or something. It's kind of a weird thing, but they have a succubus general on 4chan. As I've said, I've brought it up before. It goes pretty deep when you look into it. At, at first, you're thinking, well, this is just funny, and people are just hanging out, and they're, they're having a good time. But this thing doesn't go away. This general's been around for a long time, and they've sort of developed like an accepted pantheon of well-known succubus personalities uh, where they, they have these characters that they return to over and over again. For example, Lilith, the first wife of Adam, who left the Garden of Eden and became a mother of demons. Uh... And Nam and Agrat Bat Malat <laughs> and Isaac Zenunum. Uh, they're all con- considered angels of a certain type, and there's there's rules and there's there's ways that you can summon them, and it's just it's fascinating to me. I'm just fascinated by this whole thing. I think it's so strange, uh, but also in the context of just how people seem to operate sometimes. It's uh, it's just an energy that exists out there, an energy that needs to be tapped into in some way, shape, or form. It needs to be expressed, and people have found a way to express it through these sorts of underground, but not so underground, channels a lot of people don't know about. And there are more than just succubus generals. There's there's all kinds of generals that that have these sorts of feminine... Characters that are that are much less sexual and they're much more they're much more spiritual. They're much more healing. There's there's an Aphrodite general. There's an Ishtar general, of course. Um, it, it's all dedicated to the reverence of some goddess type figure, a mythological divinity of a feminine nature that drive men to a higher plane of existence. 
and women as well. Uh, it's it's a weird icon of the day, and one must one must wonder one must wonder if the memes and pornographic energy of the ancient world uh, were in effect with these goddesses of past times. What is worship? What is dedication to some higher being or some higher sphere of self? Does it reflect itself sometimes in these very kind of weird, small ways? Is that just what happened back then? And it's been blown up over time and and sort of established as this high, super cultured thing when it's really just us painting over the past with, with a certain reverence because it happened so long ago and because we wouldn't be here without it. Like they said, the Roman, uh, the ancient Greek statues, I'm sorry, ancient Greek statues that we think about as being purely white and marble, they painted on those. They look like shit. Back in the real old days, they fucking painted those things like, you know, like a fourth grader would. You know, red and blue and green, because that's what they had. It was really expensive to make that shit in the first place, and and to them, it was, it was really cool. And to us, it just looks like shit, because we're used to a different caliber of artistic expressivity and the tools at our disposal are much more advanced than the tools that they had. It's all a matter of strange perspective. And when you think about history, sometimes these sorts of questions present themselves because you can look at the dates, you can look at the events, you can look at the names, but it's hard to understand people uh, who lived thousands of years ago if you were having trouble understanding even yourself or the people around you that live today. How are you to do that then? I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is that I want to thank you for joining me on episode 121 of Behind the Schemes. We do the show damn near every single Monday night. Every single Monday night. Myself and Booberry... Black Knight of the Moth. We do the show every single Monday night, 7.30 Pacific, 9.30 Central, 10.30 Eastern. Thank you for joining me. We're one of those late night shows. Sometimes we like to educate. Sometimes we like to put you to sleep. Tuck you in. Every Monday night, baby. Give us a call, 612-263-7999. And I guarantee you won't regret it too much. It'll be all good. If we don't see you before then, have a happy birthday. (laughs) And a happy Halloween. And a happy Christmas. Hopefully we'll see you next week. Buenas noches, senoras y senoritas. And God bless. Slavish, signing off.